Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Thanks for having me back, GC. Well, the court is in full swing before its coming winter break, and while it conducts its usual business of hearing cases, it's receiving petitions from the ongoing election litigation. There were two big developments on that front this week. Zach, give me the scoop. First up is Kelly v. Pennsylvania. In this case, Republican Congressman Mike Kelly and several other individuals filed an emergency application last Thursday asking the Supreme Court to enjoin Pennsylvania officials from certifying the results of the November 3rd election in favor of Joe Biden. On Tuesday, though, which was also the federal safe harbor deadline for certifying election results, the justices entered a one-sentence order denying Kelly's request for an injunction. The order indicated that Justice Alito had referred the request to the entire court, and it indicated no dissenting justices. However, another Pennsylvania election-related lawsuit, Republican Party of Pennsylvania v. Bukvar, remains pending and addresses issues surrounding the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's order that election officials, among other things, must accept late-arriving absentee ballots up to three days after Election Day. The court will likely not decide whether to hear this case before the Electoral College meets and electors cast their votes on Monday, which is December 14th. Next is Texas v. Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Unlike most cases that come to the court via a writ of certiorari after having first been heard in lower federal courts or state courts, Texas filed this case directly with the Supreme Court seeking to invoke its original jurisdiction. Original jurisdiction cases such as this one frequently involve disputes between states. Here, Texas is asking the court to invalidate the presidential election results in these four states and to either order them to conduct special elections or, if they have already appointed their presidential electors, to appoint a new set of presidential electors in a manner that does not violate the electors clause and the 14th Amendment or to appoint no presidential electors at all. To support this request, Texas argues that the elections in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin violated Article II's Electors Clause and the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses. Before the court can address those claims, though, Texas first has to convince the court to hear the case. Additionally, President Trump has asked to intervene, and 17 states have filed a joint amicus brief in support of Texas encouraging the court to hear the case. Well, that's a lot of drama. Absolutely. <laughs> that brings us to oral arguments. The first this week uh, that we'll touch on is Collins versus Mnuchin. Now, this case is a follow-up in part to last term's SELA law versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. You'll probably remember the court there held that Congress violates the separation of powers when it significantly restricts the president's ability to fire solo directors of administrative agencies. In Collins, we have a similar claim uh, leveled against the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is the uh, entity that regulates Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Those corporations that buy and guarantee mortgages came under a lot of fire during 2008 uh, financial crisis. Now, the FHFA's solo director can only be removed for cause. The suit here was brought by shareholders of Fannie and Freddie who argue, among other things, that certain actions that the FHFA took in regulating those corporations after the financial crisis reduced the value of their investments to near zero. 
The removal restriction here is similar to the one at issue in SELA law, but there are some issues that, to a few of the justices at oral argument, seem to make this case distinguishable. First, the challenged actions were undertaken by the acting director of the FHFA, who the president, then Obama, could have removed at will. Second, unlike the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the FHFA does not have the ability to, and I'm quoting from SELA law, bring the coercive power of the state to bear on millions of private citizens. Third, the four-cause requirement here is broader than the removal restriction for the CFPB, which was limited to inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance in office. Now, Justice Sotomayor found these differences persuasive, but Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, on the other hand, seemed to think that what was good for the CFPB was good for the FHFA, too. After all, what is inefficiency, neglect of duty, or malfeasance, if not cause? Other justices, notably the Chief and Justice Breyer, seemed to doubt that the plaintiffs had actually suffered any harm. After all, their shares still had value on the market. Whatever happens to the director, it's not clear that the plaintiffs will get the full recovery they want. As in SELA, the court might sever the removal provision, but otherwise leave the statutory regime in place. Also heard by the court this week were two cases, Hungary v. Simon and Germany v. Philip. These two cases both involved theft of Jewish-owned art and property during or immediately before World War II. The plaintiffs in Philip are the heirs of German-Jewish art dealers who allege that the Nazi regime forced the sale of their art collection at below market prices and today, the collection at issue is valued at approximately a quarter of a billion dollars. Similarly, the plaintiffs in Simon are 14 Jewish survivors of the Hungarian Holocaust who are now bringing their putative class action on behalf of all those who had their property seized by the Hungarian government and its state-owned railway. More than two-thirds of Hungary's 800,000-strong Jewish population were murdered during World War II. In both cases, the main issue is whether the expropriations exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act provides jurisdiction for U.S. federal courts to hear claims where it's alleged that a foreign government took property from its own citizens within its own country. As a general rule, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act provides that foreign sovereigns are immune from suit in U.S. courts. There are several limited exceptions, one of which is the expropriation exception at issue here, which applies when rights and property are taken by a foreign sovereign in violation of international law. In Philip, both Germany and the United States, which appeared as an amicus in the case, said that when Congress passed this exception, it did not intend for it to apply to domestic takings by foreign sovereigns. Chief Justice Roberts, along with Justices Thomas, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Kavanaugh, however, seemed skeptical of this proposition, indicating that there could be certain domestic takings, such as those that correspond with the genocide, that would violate international law and seem to be covered by the plain text of the statute. But the justices also seem skeptical of the broad reading of the exception that plaintiffs' counsel pushed, which would allow many more suits against foreign nations to be filed in U.S. courts. Another consideration is that a tribunal in Germany had already heard the claims in this case and had ruled against the plaintiffs. In Hungary v. Simon, the justices confronted a related question, which is assuming the expropriation exception to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act grants U.S. federal courts the jurisdiction to hear cases involving domestic takings by foreign sovereigns, 
can the courts nonetheless decline to hear those cases based on the judicially created doctrine of international comedy, which seeks to show respect for the decisions of other foreign sovereigns? Again, both Hungary and the United States, which also appeared as an amicus in this case, said courts could still decline to hear cases based on comedy concerns, even where the expropriations exception would otherwise allow them to hear those cases. The plaintiffs, of course, disagreed. Well, opinion season has started. We have four this week, all unanimous, all 8-0, because Justice Barrett did not participate in these ones. In the first case, Rutledge, the court held that an Arkansas law regulating pharmacy benefit managers, these are uh, entities that act as intermediaries between pharmacies and prescription drug plans, is not preempted by the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Next up, in United States versus Briggs, the court held that where the Uniform Code of Military Justice refers to crimes punishable by death, that means crimes where death is listed as a punishment in the code, even if the Supreme Court has ruled that a death penalty for that particular crime would violate the Eighth Amendment. So here, the issue was the statute of limitations for a rape conviction under the military code. For crimes punishable by death, there is no limitation, but for other crimes, there's a five-year limit. The code lists death as a punishment for rape, but the Supreme Court has said elsewhere that the Eighth Amendment forbids the death penalty for rape. So the issue is, does punishable by death require consideration of the relevant case law or just the plain text of the statute? A unanimous court held that the text of the statute controls. In short, there is no reason to think Congress wanted the statute of limitations tied to judicial interpretations of the Eighth Amendment because that would leave the statute of limitations unclear, difficult to apply in some cases, and what's more, Considerations that go into setting a statute of limitations, like the difficulty of gathering evidence, mounting a prosecution, etc., are totally different than the considerations that go into the court's Eighth Amendment analysis. The third case, Carney, was a challenge to a Delaware law that says that the state's courts can't have more than a bare majority of either political party on its courts. The plaintiff, a member of neither major party, sued, claiming that the provision violated his First Amendment rights by requiring him to join one of the parties to be eligible to become a judge. The court didn't reach that question, however, because it found that he lacked standing. He did not prove that he was, quote, willing and able to be a judge. The only evidence on the record was that he wanted to be a judge someday, but he hadn't even applied to any of the open positions. Last up, the court held in Tanzin v. Tanvir that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act permits money damages against government officials who violate your religious freedom. In this case, the plaintiffs, who were Muslims, alleged that they were put on the no-fly list simply because they refused to be informants against their religious communities. The district court dismissed their claim because it held that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, prohibited money damages. The Supreme Court disagreed, saying that RIFRA allows, quote, appropriate relief, which includes money damages. This is a big win for religious freedom because it gives your rights a remedy, and without a remedy, a right is simply a paper tiger. This week, we are joined by Edward Whalen and Judge Jeffrey Sutton who recently co-wrote the book, The Essential Scalia, on the Constitution, the Courts, and the Rule of Law. Ed and Judge Sutton were clerks together with Judge Daniel Collins for Justice Scalia. Today, Ed is the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a prolific author on all things court, constitution, and originalism, and the author of now three volumes of Justice Scalia's work. Judge Sutton, of course, is a judge on the Sixth Circuit. Although he worked as a law clerk under Justice Scalia, he was actually hired by Justice Powell, but he took senior status. 
Before joining the bench, Judge Sutton was in private practice in Ohio, served as Solicitor General of Ohio, and also taught law at Ohio State, Moritz College of the Law, and at Harvard. Welcome, both of you, again. Thank you. Thank you. So you two have put out a new book, uh, The Essential Scalia. Can you give us an overview of the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Justice Scalia, over the course of his career, uh, managed to address basically every important uh, legal question. And this book aims to, uh, to collect uh, his best thoughts on the broad gamut of legal questions and present them in a way that is accessible, uh, not just to lawyers, but to a broader audience. So uh, you'll have his uh, best opinions, uh, best dissents here. You'll also have um, some of his speeches and, and articles. And uh, the, whole, the goal is to present um, the entirety of his views uh, in, in one volume. Yes, well, you know, the thing I would add is um, it, it does have his best majorities and dissents. It probably does cover every key topic of American law today. Um, but it also has some essays where he, he describes his own theories of judging, uh, whether it's originalism, how to construe the Constitution, textualism, how to construe statutes, and, you know, his more overarching view about um, the idea that judges have to reduce legal interpretation to rules that not only will decide the case in front of them, but will bind them to a rule in a future case to avoid the risk that they'll simply use their own policy preferences or worldviews in deciding cases. So for people who have read many of the great books by or about Justice Scalia, including, Ed, your other books, Scalia Speaks and On Faith, what new frontiers does this book approach? Well, as you point out, this book uh, in many ways is, uh, is a culmination of a trilogy of collections that I've had the privilege of working on. The first two uh, with um, Chris Scalia as my co-editor. Those uh, first two volumes uh, were much broader than law. The first one offered Justice Scalia's uh, speeches on a whole range of topics. The subtitle, Law, Faith, and Life Well Lived, indicated. And the second one is focused very much on faith and, and, and religion, uh, his writings and thoughts on those, and also the reflections of, 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 of people who knew him on his own faith and how that inspired him. So this volume uh, is, is the culmination and really focuses on uh, his monumental uh, legal legacy. And of all of his opinions, I believe he wrote 870 while he was on the Supreme Court, and his other writings, how did you narrow it down? I'll start with that one. The, um, in one sense, not easy at all. Um, not only are there a lot of opinions, but you've got all these wonderful speeches and articles. It was quite a bit of fun to go back to the 1970s and early 80s and mm-hmm. see some of these articles he was writing for Re- Regulation Magazine and just how thoughtful he was. Um, a lot of those we decided not to include because they required so much setup. So many of them were about issues unique to something going on in law in the 1970s. Um, The the broader point is that, you know, every Scalia opinion, I mean, that's one of the joys of doing this project. Every time you read one of these things, it can be the most dry as dust statutory interpretation case, and you're still going to find yourself amused or just think, wow, what a clever retort that is. But so many of those cases, you know, an ERISA ERISA case, for example, are not going to be that accessible. I mean, here we have a book about 300 pages that's trying to allow someone to introduce themselves to his way of thinking about interpretation, statutory and constitutional, in the key 
areas of law that people are fighting about these days. So that did make it a lot easier. And when you start to look at the table of contents, you'll see it's got the structure opinions, and then it's got the Bill of Rights, 14th Amendment, administrative law, quite a few criminal procedure opinions. So over 30 years, he managed to cover basically every hot button topic. And we, of course, wanted to select the ones with some of the best insights and didn't bother us that some of those had the best writing as well. And we're really hoping to uh, reproduce for the reader the uh, experience that um, we and so many folks had over the years, the simple joy of picking up a Scalia opinion or writing and discovering the pearls sometimes hidden within it, often jumping off the page, and just just, uh, how much fun he is to read, but also just how much you learn from uh, reading his opinions. Of the various opinions printed in the book, do either of you have a favorite? Well, I'm sort of like asking uh, me, uh, which which of my kids is my favorite. There's so many great <laughs> ones here. If I had to single out one, I suppose it would be Morrison versus Olson, his uh, d- descent in 1988, just his second year on the court uh, in the uh, on the question of the constitutionality of the independent counsel statute. Uh, this was a solo dissent in the face of a majority opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist. It's uh, an opinion that I think was the first clear sign of his greatness as a justice. Uh, it's wonderful to read. It has some 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 great passages, and uh, I think it's tough to beat. But there's so many in here that 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 um, uh, you could offer as uh, uh, answers to that question. Yeah, I mean, and I, I would say uh, for me, it's a moving target because uh, every time I put this book, pick this up, or pick up one of his other opinions, you suddenly find yourself going, "Oh my gosh, that's so well done. That's so thoughtful." Um, you know, one that he, I know he took pride in, and I happen to really appreciate was his Crawford decision, which um, dealt with the Confrontation Clause of the Sixth Amendment. And at the time Crawford came up. The court had been using something called the Roberts test, and Roberts was about a 6-3-7-2 decision where the court basically applied a balancing test to decide whether the criminal defendant had a confrontation right that was being um, abused or put at risk in some way. And in Crawford, he does an original analysis of the confrontation clause, which is just so thorough, well done, thoughtful, et cetera. And um, flips the court. I mean, I think it comes out 7-2. So 6-3, Robert's going one way, 7-2, I think, essentially the other way. And, um, you know, it's originalist. Uh, It shows that originalism is not just favoring government. Uh, Obviously, this hurt the government in that case. Um, And the other one I would say that, you know, it's hard to ignore in these times where there are such intense fights over nominations and confirmations of federal judges and justices. Um, you know, as early as the early 90s, he started warning everyone that, you know, if we start, if we continue using substantive due process to identify really one rule and one rule only in a given area of law, um, we're really going to put the court at risk, this crown jewel of American government, because the American people, fools though they may be, in the near term, they're not fools in the long term, and they're going to realize that if the court has the power to identify these new substantive due process rights, uh, they want to they say and what those rights are. And, you know, as early as Casey in the spring of 1992, he, he was warning that everyone, this is the path we're heading down. And sure enough, you know, America circa 2020, 
here we are struggling with that problem. And, you know, I think his book, this book is a good place to go in thinking about how we might get ourselves out of the bind we're currently in. So you both saw firsthand how this process works out for, for Justice Scalia to write an opinion. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like clerking for him? Well, it was a wonderful learning experience. I think he just uh, absorbed uh, his methodology by, by uh, being around him. Uh, look, he, uh, you know, a lot of it was working in isolation, uh, where you would be, you know, reviewing briefs, drafting opinions, and uh, uh, and uh, you know, working with him, uh, getting the opinion beaten into shape. But a, a lot of it also was just uh, arguing uh, with him or in front of him with other um, fellow law clerks uh, about how the different cases should be disposed of. And in many ways, that was the uh, the, 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 the funnest part of the experience. Yeah, for me, I mean, um, I would echo all that. And the thing that it was hard not to uh, embrace after being with him is he was so passionate about finding the right answer. And uh, he really thought there was a right answer to every legal case. And it was just a question of working a little harder if it didn't reveal itself early on. Um, and then on the writing, um, you know, just think of how much fun that would be to write a draft opinion for him watch him spin your straw into his gold and, you know, and then go back and forth on that. And, you know, that experience, I think the thing that really changed for me is writing was always difficult. I think even for Justice Scalia was still difficult, but I'm not sure I really enjoyed it before I clerked for him. And after clerking for him, I just really found myself, even in the hard cases, just really embracing the craft and the task and, uh, I suspect I speak for all of his former clerks in that regard. I mean, he just had a lot of passion about writing well. He took great joy in writing well. And um, it was probably the greatest gift I've gotten, at least uh, professionally and in a secular way, um, to be able to come away from that clerkship, you know, never knowing I'll never be able to write like him, but certainly wanting to become an effective writer. Judge, have you uh, taken any of the traditions that you learned while clerking for Justice Scalia and uh, adopted them for your own chambers and your own law clerks? I haven't read too many opinions aloud in chambers just yet. Every now and then I'm pretty happy about something. I might read a line or two that I'm really enthusiastic about. Um, but I will tell you one experience that uh, I thought for sure I would do. Um, you know, he, well, one thing I do and one thing I've, I've neglected to continue to do. So the thing he used to do was he'd pull the clerks in usually after arguments and we'd have this free for all debate about the right answer. And he really wanted to hear what everyone thought. Um, there, there were quite a bunch of different views represented that year in our chambers. And he enjoyed hearing from everybody. He loved the debate. He didn't want anyone to treat him as kind of hierarchically in the top. And, um, and you learned pretty early on that he didn't want a yes person. He wanted somebody who would push back. So I do that. I don't do it quite as formally. We have so many more cases than they do, but I, I do that. The thing I started doing was he, he would do something called booking cases. So when the, I think this usually, Ed, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this happened after the other chambers had signed off on it and it was getting ready to be released, he would book the case. And what the clerk who worked on the case had to do was bring all of the statutes, case sites, put them in sequence, and sit down next to him as he went through the draft opinion and each source of authority in the opinion. It was really a nerve-wracking experience because, <laughs> you know, he'd pull, 
you'd have the page, you know, you go to US, you know, 420, US report 791. Okay, Jeff, where is it? And then he'd read it and he'd go, are you sure? And he'd go, well, well Jeff, no, this other line. And still, are you sure? So he's really, really scrutinized. If you called it a holding, he wanted to make sure if it was a holding. I think he, he did trust us with quotes, uh, which isn't saying much. Uh, but in terms of interpreting an opinion, he wanted to see it right there and make sure he got it right. So when I went on the court, I started doing the same thing with all my cases. And I just couldn't keep up. I couldn't do it. <laughs> now, <laughs> but you know, Jeff, he surely did that before he circulated the, the, the draft around the court as he wanted to make sure everything was right. I just don't remember. I, just, I honestly don't remember. I think you're probably right. That makes yep. sense. But the key, the key point is he had this booking process that took, you know, it could be an afternoon. And he was so careful about making sure that if he had a, a source of authority for something, it's sure enough, that's what it stood for. And um, it takes a lot of time, as I can attest. I, I was unable to keep it up. Um, I'm, I'm not saying for the listeners that I don't make sure that my sources of authority are there. Um, quite often I've looked at them when I do the draft, but um, it takes a lot of time to do what he did. Judge, you mentioned that Justice Scalia would read his opinions to his clerks. Was that a regular occurrence? No, I, I, um, it, uh, it only happened once. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the introduction. Um, it only happened once the year we clerked, or at least only once I can recall. And the reason I recall it, it was my case. And uh, I'd given him a draft the night before. Back then, believe it or not, there was something called floppy disks, which he used. And, you know, he had nine kids, so he often wanted to get home for dinner and would do some work after dinner. And so that day was towards the end of the term. He took the floppy disk. He came back in and he brought all five of us in. And, and you know, I was kind of nervous. It was my case he'd been working on, but he seemed in a good mood. He kind of dramatically puts the floppy disk in, prints out the seven, eight-page concurrence dissent and start giving, giving us a dramatic reading of it. And, um, you know, I had quite a few reactions to it. The initial ones were negative. Uh, the first problem was he taken everything I liked out of the opinion every, and all that was left was an ah uh, here and above there um, but of course it was very good and um, the second thing was I, I must confess my reaction at the time was to think this was a little odd I mean who reads a dry as dust legal opinion to a captive audience we had plenty of other things to do and, and you know it's not conventional to show your pride in that conspicuous a way but the real reason I enjoyed the story and the real lesson I took from it was the joy he took in the written word and having written well. Um, and you really saw when he was, <laughs> you know, he was, he was being dramatic. Uh, you remember he, he used to be involved in theater in high school and I, I assume in college. And um, he, he enjoyed the written word and, you know, for him it was not that different from music and it should have a rhythm and a pace and it should be enjoyable to uh, both read and listen to. And uh, I think he's right about that. And um, so it's an amusing story. But no, I only saw it once. And um, and I, I, I assume it wasn't the only time he ever did it, but it's the only time I ever saw it. Ed, from your perspective, what can you tell us about Justice Scalia's writing process? Well, writing was hard work. Writing had to engage uh, your entire uh, attention. Uh, writing was a uh, disciplined intellectual process. Uh, you, you had to make sure that um, as you as you wrote things down, that things cohered. Sometimes he would come back to us and say, it doesn't write. 
which is was his shorthand um, for saying that the uh, conclusion that he had tentatively reached on a uh, on a case, um, he, he, he when he actually sat down to write it out, it didn't work. Now, for many justices and judges, I'm afraid um, the, the writing process can be a way of covering up um, uh, the, the 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 path to a desired destination, making it look look all pretty. He wanted to make sure that the path was solid, uh, and I I can also just. Uh, still sort of see him sitting at his keyboard. You know, he had a very expressive face, and it's as though the muscles in his head were churning as he was, as, uh, as he was writing. Um, uh, and then there'd be that aha moment when he when he got things um, just as he wanted them to. But uh, yeah, no writing uh, is is uh, you know he cared about every word. Uh, he wanted to make sure that things uh, were uh, easily understood. He wanted to, of course, answer competing arguments uh, and and present competing arguments fairly um, in order to answer them, not not engage in the common practice of um, setting up a straw man and knocking it down. You know, the other thing that was fun about the writing, and I guess this is something else I've borrowed, I thought it would be an easy way to imitate his style. It doesn't turn out to be that easy, but it's enjoyable. He quite often had music playing in, in the office as he was writing, uh, so not unusual to have an opera. I, I never asked him if it was classical music station, a CD player, I'm not sure what it was, but he, he quite often would have music playing while he was writing, which isn't not a bad idea. Open up the other half of the brain and see if you can get the rhythm of the music in the writing. Judge, for your law clerks and Ed, for law students that you might interact with and, and other lawyers too, what advice would you give to them if, if they wanted to emulate Scalia's effective writing? Well, you know, I, I said earlier, it was always hard work for him, and I, I think that's right. I don't think it ever got easy, um, particularly the, the really terrific stuff he put together. To me, the point of the story where he gave this dramatic reading of this opinion was it showed the joy he took from having written well. And, you know, I went into the clerkship thinking, you know, He's going to have things that neither I nor anyone else are likely to have that would allow you to write like that. And I didn't, that was not the, the takeaway from the year. The takeaway from the year was this was a, a desire point. And he simply wanted to write really well. He was the first Italian American justice on the court. He didn't want to be the last one. He wanted to write terrific opinions. I mean, if you compare his U.S. Supreme Court opinions to his D.C. Circuit opinions, I mean, you'll see it's the same person, the same level of intelligence. But I don't think you'll say the writing is consistently as strong as it is in the court opinions. And, you know, when I say desire, what I mean by that is deciding this is the goal you have in mind and then figuring out what it is people do to reach that goal. Um, so that's reading good books, uh, that's paying attention to people that write well, um, borrowing, imitating when it makes sense. And then finally, just the super hard sweat of editing and editing and editing. And um, I think it is a desire point. I think if you set the goal, I think any law student can become a really terrific writer. But it is a lot of hard work, and it was hard work for him all the way to the end. And no one should set out to write like him or to try to imitate him. Each person is going to have uh, his own style, his own uh, background of knowledge that informs how he writes. Um, I, I would say that one thing that's really important, is, uh, as uh, Judge Sutton indicated, is to read well. 
if you're reading good prose, think about you know analyze what what makes it so good. Uh, you know, practice, practice, practice. Uh, you know, never you know be content with what you've written. Look at it critically, and it's especially important, I think. Uh, for uh, writers to step back from what they've written. They know what they intended, but they need to step back and see whether a, a uh, the, the, the reader coming fresh to that is going to understand things in the same way. So you, you need to be um, incessantly uh, critical of your own writing. Well, both of you, there's one last question I'd like to ask. You know, with the passing of Justice Ginsburg, what's on a lot of people's minds right now is her friendship with Justice Scalia. Did either of you witness that friendship firsthand while clerking? And if so, uh, do you have any any memories of it? In one sense, I uh, when I was clerking, I did not witness it firsthand because Justice Ginsburg was still Judge Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit. But I did hear during the year, and of course in the years afterwards, about this friendship. And you know, I must confess that my initial reaction to it was to think, hmm. Is this a friendship of convenience, a classic D.C. relationship that would help both sides, a liberal to be friends with a conservative, a conservative with a liberal? And I, I wondered um, the, about the authenticity of it. And um, sure enough, I was dead wrong about that. Um, this really was a sincere, deep friendship between two couples and their families, you know, as shown by the fact they celebrated New Year's together every year. That's not something you lightly do. Um, but my last... Um, I'm not sure. I think this was my second to last face-to-face meeting with the justice. It would have been spring 2015, and uh, I was in D.C. for some meetings. And as I often did, went by chambers to say hello, and you know maybe we chatted for 10 minutes. It was time to go, and the justice said, uh, "Well, Jeff, I got to bring these uh, roses down to Ruth's chambers. It's her birthday." And there before me were 24 red roses, and. Um, I said, you know, I said something I probably shouldn't have said, but I said something on lines of, uh, my gosh, Justice, I don't think I've given a total of 24 roses to my wife in over 30 years of marriage. And he could be a bit of a wise guy sometimes. And he said something on the lines of, uh, Jeff, you ought to try it sometime. <laughs> well, I hated to give him the last word, and I rarely did, particularly the longer I got to know him. And I responded um, in a pretty cheeky way and said, Justice, what good have these roses done for you all these years? Name one 5-4 decision of any consequence where you got Justice Ginsburg's vote. And he said um, pretty quickly, as was often the case, Jeff, some things are more important than votes. So I let him have the last word. And, you know, I will say I didn't think there were that many things that were more important than votes to Justice Scalia. I would have ranked faith family. And I think I have to add to that category, very close friends. And he meant it. And um, it is a, it is a great example in this polarized age we're living in. Just as uh, Justice Elena Kagan was generous enough to write the foreword to this new book, The Essential Scalia, uh, Justice Ginsburg wrote the foreword to uh, the first uh, volume in the trilogy, uh, Scalia Speaks. And she ended uh, her her beautiful uh, forward with um, this um, sentence. If our friendship encourages others to appreciate that some very good people have ideas with which we disagree, and that despite differences, people of goodwill can pull together for the well-being of the institutions we serve and our country, I will be overjoyed, as I'm confident Justice Scalia would be. That same volume also includes uh, a, a roast that 
um, Justice Scalia um, offered uh, at a, a celebration of then Judge Ginsburg's 10th anniversary on the D.C. Circuit. And so you see how he, uh, and from his comments there, you can see how he really enjoyed uh, making her laugh. Gentlemen, Judge Sutton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. GC, I think you're up to be quizzed this week. Given all the talk about art this past week at the court, I thought some art-themed trivia might be appropriate. Ah, this does not sound like my strong suit, but fire away. I doubt it. You ready? Okay. The court began collecting art in the 1830s. Which individuals were depicted in those first pieces of art that the court collected or, here's a hint, commissioned? Ah, well, I assume probably portraits of the justices. That's right. Uh, In fact, they collected portraits and busts of past chief justices. Uh, So well done. You're off to a good start. Ah, busts. I remember now. They're all over in there. and The justices really seem to love those. I guess so. (laughs) For some reason. (laughs) All right. On to the next question. When the court moved to its current building in 1935, its art collection increased. Eventually, a chief justice decided it was necessary to hire a curator to manage it all. When did this happen, and who was the chief justice? Oof. I I wouldn't know. In fact, it didn't happen until 1973 when Chief Justice Warren Burger hired the court's first art curator. So far, so good. You're one in one. Okay, okay. So today, we're all familiar with the group picture that the justices take where they're all sitting or standing together, uh, but that wasn't always the court's practice. Uh, So my question is, who was the first chief justice to have his court take an official group photo together? Ah, man, Zach, stumping me with these. In fact, it was uh, Salmon P. Chase uh, who had the court take its first official portrait in the 1860s, and officials believe it was somewhere between 1865 and 1867. Interesting. Okay. All right, one more question. Uh, And in fact, another question about the court's group photo. What's wrong with the most recent group photo of the Supreme Court justices? Have I seen the most recent photo? Have they t- Oh, have they not taken one with Justice Barrett yet? That's exactly right, GC. I'm, I'm impressed with your reasoning <laughs> skills. So basically, the current Supreme Court photo was last taken in 2018, and it doesn't include Justice Barrett. Uh, since Justice Ginsburg's passing and ACB's elevation, uh, you're right. There hasn't been a new official portrait. Uh, the standard practice is to take a new photo after a change in court membership, and the court typically does that fairly quickly. Uh, for example, when Justice Kavanaugh joined the court, uh, the court took one within the month uh, of when he joined. But undoubtedly, I'm assuming the court's most recent update to their photo has been delayed because of COVID. Makes sense. Well, that's it today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.